Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters avino silver and gold mines is a low-cost high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience in 2012 avino resumed production at its historic avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE Amex Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O dot com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm back here with Gordon Chang. Uh, before we pick up where we left off on the discussion of Mao Zedong's regime, I do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. For the second hour, our sponsors are American Manganese, Avino Silver and Gold Mines, Prophecy Platinum, and Millrock Resources. Well, Gordon, when we went to break, we talked about, uh, or we started, we were talking about a couple of the uh, the um, policies or programs that were put in during Mao Zedong's day, the 100 uh, Flowers Movement and the Anti-Rightist Campaign. And the next one that you talk about in your book, or you mention at least, is the Great Leap Forward. Talk to us about that. At the end of the 1950s, Mao wanted to take China and, and as he said, a great leap forward um, so that China would be as industrialized as Britain and eventually would be the most industrialized nation on earth. 
And so he um, launched a number of different programs. So, for instance, the one that's gotten the most attention is that he wanted China to be the world's number one steel producer. So he had all these uh, peasants um, basically um, put together backyard steel furnaces um, where they then took their pots and their pans and their cooking utensils and melted them down. And it was totally impractical, but what it did was it created extreme hardship. Also, there were unbelievably high targets for grain, and um, essentially uh, Mao wanted to export grain, so grain was taken out of uh, from the farmers' hands and sold on global markets, but there wasn't enough left in China. And we had essentially somewhere between 30 to 70 million people die uh, on unnatural deaths. Most uh, experts think somewhere between 30 and 40, um, but you know the number was just unimaginable, even if it was at the lower end of the range. Hmm. This um, was a campaign that went on far too long. Um, Mao continued it beyond all reasonable time when he could see it was a failure. Um, but lower-level cadres were falsifying data to make themselves look good. And there's also a, a debate among China scholars whether Mao was actually evil or whether he was just deluded by lower-level cadres. But it doesn't really matter. This was uh, the worst famine in history. And probably Mao is responsible for more unnatural deaths than any other man in history, uh, largely because of the Great Leap Forward. Well, he, he eclipses Hitler then by quite a ways, doesn't he? Um, so, okay, so so there must be an awful lot of dissension then as things are getting more and more miserable within the Communist Party, within Mao Zedong's uh, regime. I guess it was just a matter of cracking down and forcing people to keep their mouths shut and, and not to revolt, right? Right, and then that sort of led to the Cultural Revolution, uh, which started in 1966, where Mao, as a, probably as a means to get rid of his enemies, uh, launched what he called the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, um, where he essentially um, disbanded almost everything in society except for the army. Um, as a means, of, and he launched uh, tens of millions of Chinese youths, known as the Red Guards, to remake society. Um, so they were they were trying to get rid of old culture, um, old thinking, anything old. And so um, people in authority, teachers, local cadres, whatever, um, were you know paraded through the streets with dunce caps. Um, you know their hands were bound behind their back. Many of them were murdered. There was essentially chaos as the red guards turned among themselves. And there was a breakdown in society. It was bizarre, uh, one of the most abnormal periods in history. Um, and so uh, this had to end. And essentially, um, with Mao's death, uh, things started to return to normal. Um, because Mao, uh, after Mao died, then his wife, Zhang Qing, who was one of the more of the evil perpetrators of this, um, she and three of her henchmen, known as the Gang of Four, were put on trial. Eventually, Deng Xiaoping took over at the end of 1978 and uh, responded to the great desire for freedom and reform on the part of China's peasants. And so we saw the Communist Party start to relent, start to break down the Maoist system of command uh, in the economy, and, and we saw, as a result of it, uh, a great economic boom, which has lasted for about 35 years.
Because basically he took off a lot of the, the constrictions against the against economic uh, free economics and allowed people to be somewhat more free. Is that what, what did it? Yeah, well, essentially the, the peasants pushed the Communist Party out of the way, and Deng Xiaoping, I think, deserves less credit for the reforms. But the one thing he does deserve credit for, and this is great credit, is that he responded to the desires of the Chinese peasantry to um, you know free up agriculture, to free up industry, um, you know, this is not something the Communist Party wanted. This is not something that Deng Xiaoping wanted. Um, but it is something that Deng had the foresight to realize that the party, in order to retain control, had to relent. And so we see um, the startings of reform. And that reform continued well into the 1990s, maybe even the first part, first five or so years of this decade, but now, basically, the Communist Party is in an anti-reform mode, and that's why we see the, the country starting to close up, starting to try to cripple foreign investors, try to reserve opportunities for state enterprises, and a very collusive sort of uh, economic system that we see today. And that is going to have enormous repercussions for China's ability to grow in the future. It seems a bit ironic that it's the peasants that had to overthrow the communists when the communist ideology, at least, is supposed to be pro-peasant, right? Uh, yes. Uh, it's, it's interesting that you mention that. Um, and, and it's just sort of the natural, I guess, tendency of revolutionary organizations that are successful enough to endure that they become bureaucratized. Uh, they become all the things that they um, uh, fought against. And that's what we have in, in China today is we have a deeply corrupt, collusive system which now works against the interests of the Chinese people. And that's why I believe that it cannot endure because it's from so many different perspectives. It stands for things that the Chinese people do not want. Let's... Um I'd like to know a little bit more about the Gang of Four, of which Mao Zedong's wife was one. What was their purpose, and what what did they try to do? Well, uh, ultimately, they tried to gain power, um, but their ideology was extreme leftist ideology, and they said that they were acting um, for Mao Zedong, um, which makes this very, very complicated. But uh, they were um, diehard leftists. Um, you know, they wanted to see this as Mao's concept of permanent revolution, um, continuous revolution to be implemented, but they wanted to see themselves on top. And so they were struggling for um, to be the successors for Mao because Mao was obviously ill for quite a long time, and they knew that his days were short, and they were trying to position themselves as his ideological heir and also as the uh, the next leaders of China. So Mao passed away uh, in 1976, and uh, Deng Xiaoping came into into power. And uh, as I understand what you're saying, is he basically went further than ideologically he wanted to go. He, was he was he in good standing with Mao? Well, um, Deng Xiaoping had been purged three times, oh. um, and uh, he came back uh, every time because he was uh, had had a very important and very strong networks among the military and among um, China's top leaders. Um, he also was very wily, very pragmatic, uh, ruthless in his own way. And so he was a survivor. Anyone who survived in that system had to be um, strong and ruthless. And Deng Xiaoping was all of those. 
And so uh, what he did was um, he pushed aside Mao's designated successor, Hua Guofeng, um, and uh, that basically uh, his, his Deng's rule is basically started at the end of 1978 at an important party meeting, and from there on, uh, Deng was able to consolidate power as he pushed aside uh, competitors, including um, you know those who who felt that uh, there should be no reform. But but what Deng did was he pushed China into a different direction. He allowed the Chinese people to um, have much more uh, economic freedom. And um, we saw a flowering of Chinese society in the early part of his rule. Deng was generally loved by the Chinese people until Tiananmen Massacre in, in June 1989. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, it was uh, during Deng that the, that the United States started talking and opening up uh, trade with, with China to, an ex- to a great extent during the Nixon administration, right? Well, Nixon in 1972 um, went to Beijing in, in February, as a matter of fact. So we've just marked the 40th anniversary of uh, Nixon's trip to Beijing. Mm-hmm. And essentially what Nixon did was enlisted Mao as an informal ally in the Cold War. Um, but the United States didn't actually recognize the People's Republic as a legitimate government of China until the Carter years. And uh, essentially um, from Carter forward, we saw an American policy of engagement of China to try to bring China into the international system. And that policy of engagement has endured until today, although we're starting to see many people question it because engagement has made China not only economically powerful but also in many ways a belligerent and a hostile state, as we've seen since the end of 2009. Um, Many people now are concerned about China's trajectory as we see Beijing take on all of its neighbors at once, and also as well taking on the United States. Mm-hmm. So did Nixon then sort of see China as as um, as a player against against Russia? I mean, he was he trying to exploit this uh, Sino-Soviet uh, um, uh, rift between the between the Chinese Communists and the Russians? Exactly. That's that's what that's what Nixon saw as an opportunity and. Even after the uh, end of the Cold War, this policy continued, even though the the basis, uh, the rationale for the policy, no longer existed. Um, okay, so so we've had this liberalization, you can call it that, I guess, up to an to an extent, and uh, until Tiananmen Square, uh, Zhao, uh, Deng Xiaoping was was very well revered. Uh, so what happened, and why why have the people the people turned? Uh, and that see, Tiananmen Square happened how long ago now? That's been a few years. Twenty two years ago, June fourth, nineteen eighty nine. Okay. I think that what's happened is that it, it occurs in any modernizing society. You know, Tocqueville wrote about this in connection with the French Revolution, which followed an extraordinary economic advance in France, and the the peasants in France were treated much better than the peasants elsewhere in Europe, mm-hmm. where conditions were worse. And so, uh, you know, the, if you look back at France, it, the parts of France that had seen the most improvement were the most revolutionary. Well, those trends, you know, we saw not just in 18th century France, we also saw those in um, South Korea, um, Thailand, Taiwan. Um, this is just a condition of modernizing societies that they, um, people demand more. People start to demand rights. They want to protect their property. Um, they want more say in their lives. They don't want to be treated uh, like children when it comes to politics. 
And so that's what we're seeing in China today. It is the inevitable result of modernization. I'd like to ask you if there would be some parallels in the United States, but we don't really have time. We've only got a couple of more minutes left in this uh, in this segment, and uh, I know you have to run off to another appointment. But uh, let's. So you see things falling apart. At the same time, lots of American corporations are trying to get their tentacles into China. I mean, the the, the banking system, Goldman Sachs, and others are are certainly trying to get in there. Let's say you're right and China has some sort of a revolution. Do you see the large Western corporations having a presence there maybe to pick up the pieces if things really fall apart? I mean, that's possible, but it's also possible that they will be nationalized. I mean, we really don't know. And part of it, it just may be that uh, even if they're not nationalized, that conditions are so turbulent that they just do not want to remain there. I mean, there are any number of different outcomes. Um, the Communist Party could go peacefully or it could go with a bang. Uh, I actually don't think that the party is going to go the way the Soviets did uh, without a fight. Um, so this could be very difficult. But even if there, even if I'm wrong and there is no revolution in China, we're seeing the economy start to crumble and uh you know, the economic opportunities are just not there, as we have seen the Communist Party try to restrict the abilities of foreign companies to compete. This is, you know, starting with Google. We're starting to see it with the automobile companies. Um, all sorts of um, really uh, unfavorable trends for foreign business in China. Yeah, you mentioned that the Chinese growth is only about 1%. Now, that's a far cry from what they claim, isn't it? Well, if you look at what, uh, you know, you look at January, the, this, the last month for which we have statistics, electricity consumption, which is the best indicator of Chinese economic activity, was down 7.5%. Um, lending was down almost 50%. Um, bellwether car sales were down 23.8%. It was the fifth straight month of property declines, the third straight month of decline in foreign direct investment. Now, those numbers were affected by the Lunar New Year holiday, which occurred in January. But nonetheless, that does not begin to explain those atrocious results, which were much worse than analysts had expected. Really, there's been an inflection point in China. We see a lot of money, hot money, leaving, perhaps as much as $100 billion in the fourth quarter. That followed perhaps as much as $34 billion in the third quarter. The foreign reserves declined in the last quarter of last year for the first time since 1998. There's a new pessimism in China as the Chinese people, who are the insiders, are starting to see the opportunities narrow for everyone except for the state enterprises. So this is, this is a real problem right now in China. And so that's why I believe that if there's growth, it's only growth about the same as ours. And perhaps uh, we're starting to see the beginning of a contraction. In any event, China is on a new super cycle. And instead of the super cycle upwards, as it has been for the last three decades, this super cycle is down. Well, I know Chen Lin, who is a partner of mine and is on this show from time to time, talks about how many of the Chinese businesses are not able to make money, and what they've done is taken their capital and speculated and bought commodities. Do you think that there is a, a boom in commodities that Chinese people are looking to, to buy, and Chinese uh, state-run organizations are buying commodities and or resources around the world to try to find some place to retain their wealth, and they see some problems coming on the horizon? Well, we certainly see this with gold. Um, the Chinese people have what's basically the, um, the equivalent of capital flight. If they can't 
put their money abroad, what they can do is they can take it out of the economy by buying gold. And I wrote about this in Forbes because it seems to be a really interesting aspect of of uh, the behavior of Chinese people right now. The Chinese government has been stockpiling commodities itself because it um, there is a there's a uh, declining uh, demand for imports from consumers, and so in order to dress up the uh, export-import numbers, it's been buying commodities because it doesn't want its surplus to get too big. Because while it's still able to sell um, on global markets, there's a less and less of a demand for imports, and so that would create an enormous trade surplus, which the Chinese government is trying to disguise by importing things like copper. But, you know, in, in January and February, both imports and exports were down, and that is a trend. Um, this is this is something the Chinese government's got to deal with. Well, what if, if what you say is true, and I, I have no reason to doubt it, then it, it would seem to me that what we have is the potential for a global deflationary event uh, to the extent that China is that significant in the, in the world economy. Would you agree with that? Um, perhaps. But, you know, if manufacturing isn't done in China, it's going to be done elsewhere. Um, Vietnam, Mexico, the United States. Mm-hmm. We see some insourcing. You know, through China's predatory trade practices, um, they have snatched growth from other nations. So if the growth isn't in China, it'll be elsewhere. And that will be a net plus for the world, I believe, to have a more, more stable system. Gordon, it's it's been very, very good. We are out of time now. Tell people how they can follow your work. I archive my stuff at www.gordonchang.com, gordonchang.com. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Gordon. It's been really enlightening, very, very interesting. I had pages more questions to ask you. Perhaps we can convince you to come back on the show sometime in the near future. Um, Thank you very much again. Folks, don't go away. Uh, We're going to be back with Keith Schaefer, who will talk to us about the oil and gas industry that is being revolutionized by converging technologies in North America. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. 
Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www.rypatchgold.com. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, uh, and I'm really pleased to have with me Keith Schaefer. Uh, he is an expert uh, on the oil and gas industry, and that's his focus. We're going to talk to Keith about some of the things he likes in this exciting new growth industry, um, oil and gas. Uh, and um, I've only recently begun to realize the enormous significance of emerging technologies in the oil and gas industries. We had a petroleum geologist uh, on this show not that long ago, well, maybe several months ago, Patrick Leahy, uh, Laracy, I should say. Uh, he's the president and CEO of Vulcan Minerals. He's a petroleum geologist. And he impressed on me the enormous amount of uh, potential this had actually to improve the United States economy. But it wasn't until I was talking with Rick Rule and Doug Casey uh, a couple of weeks back, and it really started to dawn on me how significant this was uh, this new revolution, uh, or the, let's say the convergence of technologies that are allowing the exploitation of oil and gas, massive amounts of it in the shale formations in, in North America. Um, but it was after, actually after I talked to Doug Casey on the show, uh, and um, I sent Doug an email because it dawned on me that it probably, uh, you know, he had expressed his idea that he had turned bullish on the U.S., and it probably had something to do with the shale industry. So I asked him about that. I sent him an email, and he came back to me with an email, and he said, Jay, the fact that the shale industry is occurring is what I still like about the USA. Scientists have known that we have had vast amounts of hydrocarbons trapped in impermeable shale sequences for decades. When we began to experience shortfalls in conventional gas production, the price of gas soared and the markets worked. Good old Yankee and Canuck ingenuity worked, and a conjunction of three new technologies, three-dimensional seismic ac- uh, acquisition, 
and processing horizontal uh, drilling and multi-stage fracking solved the gas shortage problem. Uh, note, he, he mentions, he says, uh, that the solution did not come from the Department of Energy. It came from the private energy uh, industry. Uh, the market worked. Well, uh, so we want to ex- really try to understand this because I just, as I say, have come to believe that, this, that there are great, fantastic opportunities uh, in the oil and gas sector. So uh, to help us sort that out and to try to find our way and, and perhaps direct us uh, it, uh, lead us in a direction where we can uh, take advantage of this and profit from it. We have Keith Schaefer with us once again. Welcome, Keith. Good to have you back. Hey, thank you for having me on. Keith, before we get started here, can you tell people uh, where they can follow your work? I just don't want to forget that. Sometimes we get into these discussions and there's no time left uh, to let our guests tell our listeners where they can follow their work. What is your website? It's www.oilandgas-investments.com. If you just Google me at Keith Schaefer, I'm generally the first person to come up. And Schaefer is spelled how? S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R. Okay. So uh, I'm sensing that this is a these converging technologies are really profound, or at least have the potential to be uh, to profoundly impact the U.S. economy, and I would think in a positive way. How profound do you see the emergence of uh, horizontal drilling and new fracking technologies? How big a deal is it for the U.S. and Canada? Uh, I think for the U.S. in particular, it has been a savior. Because what has happened here, Jay, is that, uh, well, let's start right at the very beginning, way upstream in in the oil and gas drilling. We hit now on probably 90% of the wells we drill in the United States and Canada. So, you know, before this whole revolution happened, the shale revolution, our hit-and-miss ratio was much, much lower. Mm-hmm. But because of these new technologies that Rick mentioned, particularly the 3D seismic, we are now able to have a success ratio that we hit on almost 90% of the wells we drill. Wow, that's Once, big. It, that's huge. So when you discover one of these new shale plays, what history has now shown us over the last 12, 13 years that we've been actively doing this is that, yes, there are sweet spots, but for the most part, uh, these geological formations are quite consistent over a big area. Mm-hmm. So you've got a, you, you hit one play, one hole in a good play, and you have a great chance at hitting dozens, if not hundreds, of successful wells over the next three to five years. Mm. So that has really rejuvenated the whole oil and gas industry. But, of course, for the gas side, what it has done for the U.S. economy is just almost miraculous. And yeah. here's where Rick is really onto something where he talks about how now the natural gas price is so low in the United States and of course uh, for ev- and, and that's great news for everybody except the producers of it yeah. so what, what we're seeing happen and, and I, I think one of the reasons you're seeing Doug and Rick get so keen on the states again is you, you, you read about DuPont is now brought back two billion dollars worth of business to the continental US and why is that? low gas prices cheap input costs, low feedstock costs. And that is happening in many, many industries, but particularly the petrochemical industries, the fertilizer industries, and the energy sector. So you look at Methanex that makes methanol. They brought back a plant from Chile. Now, they didn't obviously pack it up and bring it back, but they mothballed one plant and opened up another one in Louisiana. So that created Mm. hundreds of jobs all of a sudden, good-paying jobs. So I think... 
you really are seeing this repatriation of industry back to the states. And the number one reason for that is low gas costs. Well, that's that's fascinating. You know, I heard on Bloomberg uh, Radio, well, maybe a month ago or so, about the, uh, the in the city that I was born in, Canton, Ohio, a new steel mill has been uh, constructed to simply to build the pipes that are needed uh, for the exploration and, I guess, production of oil and gas from shale. So that's just another industry that is, has cropped up. So really, I mean, Keith, you and I are involved and have been involved for years in the natural resource sector. I have always believed and continue to believe, and I think it's very obvious, that that natural resources, oil and gas and the minerals, the, you know, the metals and so forth, are really wealth-creating endeavors, are they not? Because you're just talking about all these other industries that spring up around the oil and gas industry. So it, it really is big in terms of... Uh, if it, So to, let's try to get an idea of how big this is. How where, First of all, where are these formations, these shale formations? There are vast formations in the United States, and maybe you can mention them in Canada as well, but where, where are these regions uh, for those that may not be familiar with these shale formations? You know, it's funny that... God was a lot more democratic in putting shale gas deposits all around the United States than he was with oil. Like, oil has traditionally been a Texas phenomena yeah. and a little bit up and down the, the, the foothills of the West Coast Mountains. But shale gas, he, it, it, it's almost everywhere. It's like, first there was the big one in Texas, but then it moved over to Louisiana and the Haynesville shale. And that's been a great win for, for the industry. Then it moved up into Oklahoma, the Woodford shale. And then you're, you're starting to see the Niobrara shale all from uh, Wyoming right down to northern New Mexico. And then we've discovered the granddaddy, but well, so far this is the granddaddy which, uh, of the shale gas, which is the Marcellus shale in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio. And then they mm-hmm. discovered another geological formation right underneath it called the Utica that is just as big. So it's... What's happening here is it, it's really turning the, the entire energy industry on its head, and everybody's going, wow, look at all this new supply. And that is creating an unbelievable amount of wealth for landowners, first off, because they get great royalty checks. You go to anybody in the, in the Bakken oil shale formation, which is in North Dakota and Montana, and those landowners are laughing all the way to the bank uh, with their royalty checks. They don't mm-hmm. need to farm anymore. And so... You're seeing that happen, and, and, and for a lot of uh, America, where things have been pretty tough lately, this is just a huge boon for them, and, yeah. and that's money that gets put directly in at the community level. Mm-hmm. That's not corporate money. That's like money that, that goes straight into the genes, the farmers and the ranchers, mm-hmm. and the landowners. So that's been fantastic. And, and then uh, really what you're seeing up in Canada is, is very similar things, where the Bakken does stretch up onto the northern part of the border there into Saskatchewan. And we have a, a big formation, ma- many different formations in Alberta that are being developed. And, and what's interesting, Jay, is that we've known about these deposits for decades. Mm-hmm. We've drilled through them on the way to other more what we call conventional targets, the, the big oil pools. Mm-hmm. And so when we, now that we've discovered this technology of fracking and horizontal drilling, there's almost no geological risk in these new plays. Yeah. That that is that has to be just absolutely huge when it comes to investing in these uh, plays. But more importantly, I guess all the other industries that spring up around a successful uh, basic wealth producer like the oil and gas industry. Keith, you were mentioning a little while ago 
that you have you know these days more like a ninety percent success ratio. Let's let's step back a minute. Um, where sort of um, what sort of uh, percentage of dry holes were hit before this emergence uh, before these emerging technologies took place? I know it was, in recent years it's been becoming you know the low hanging fruit so to speak has been taken has been picked up a long time ago and it's you know we've been going deeper and deeper in under the ocean to find oil and gas um what what sort of percentage of failures did we have previously using standard technologies before the convergence you, you know jay I, have to be honest with you, I don't have any stats right at the tip of my fingers here but mm-hmm. but i can tell you with with great certainty is that now with 3d seismic is they can see the the, the layers of shale deep underground and once once they've hit it and it and it's proven that it's got hydrocarbons mm-hmm. you can't tell from the top of the ground if it's water or gas or oil but you can usually mm-hmm. tell if it's got one of those three and then you know hopefully it's it's obviously economic but it, it, it's much higher now it, it, it the, the success rate is much much higher and, and like I say a big part of that reason is because we already know where these formations are we, we we've drilled through them before there's no mystery here, uh, very little mystery. So it, it's been quite an exciting run now for the last 15 years as everyone kind of gets used to hitting. Like in my own portfolio, I, I doubt I've got a single stock that has less than a 90% hit rate. And it's not unusual to see companies with three years running never miss a well. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really exciting. Of course, as you point out, on the gas side, the, the prices have gone down, and the companies that are actually producing gas are not doing all that well now. Of course, that's a great benefit to the rest of the economy. I heat my home with natural gas; it's good for me. Uh, where do you? How long do you think these natural gas prices will be suppressed, Keith? And when when might we start to see natural gas producers uh, actually start to profit from this? That, that's an excellent question, and I think that the answer is very simple. Liquid natural gas, LNG, that mm-hmm. is really the only savior of, of the natural gas producers. And so what's happening is back in the early part of the last decade, when we thought we were going to have a huge natural gas shortage, mm-hmm. like in 03, 04, 05, we built several LNG import terminals. But then as the shale revolution got underway in a, on a massive scale, those imports never materialized because we didn't need them. Mm-hmm. And so now we've got all this infrastructure that the industry is just now really trying to turn around and make them become export terminals. Mm-hmm. And so because our gas is so much cheaper than the rest of the world, Jay, and I'm talking not by 10 or 20 percent, I'm talking by half or two-thirds, that much cheaper, that the rest of the world uh, is really now waiting for American gas, saying, wow, gas everywhere else is like you know, 14 to $20 in MCF, and in North America, in the U.S., it's only three or four. Wow. So there's a huge arbitrage there that industry can take advantage of, and so the rest of the world is saying, please, we need cheaper fuel. United States, continue. Please do this and get this LNG export so you can help fuel the world. And so that, as those approvals and permits become more common, and the market sees that LNG exports are going to happen, and they already are, are starting to happen. There has been LNG leave the Louisiana coast with gas for Europe. So it has started, but it's not on any big scale. So this LNG export boom that should start happening, let's say within two to three years, 
Mm-hmm. That's the key for investors. As we get closer to that time, you'll start to see the price of gas in the United States pick up to maybe not world levels, but certainly higher because for the first time in history now, Jay, the natural gas market is going global because of LNG tankers. And so that that's going to be the boon for both the industry and its investors. So I think that's two to three years away. Mm-hmm. And so what the market does, it starts to price that stuff in about a year in advance. Mm-hmm. So if I'm a believer that in three years' time, we're going to start to have quite regular LNG exports, that means in 18 months, the market will start to price that in, about 18 months in advance of the actual event happening. Keith, are these LNG plants, um, they're very, requires a lot of capital, I'm sure, to build them. And, and are there environmental issues? Are there permitting issues that, that take a long time to build them? Uh, and to what extent can those uh, import facilities be turned into export facilities? My understanding is, Jane, I'm not technical on this, but my understanding is that it's actually not that difficult at all to turn it into uh, an import into an export facility. Plus, on the ones that are already built, and I believe there's five of them, uh, the permitting should be that difficult, but for any new greenfield you absolute situation, absolutely you're going to have some environmental and local opposition just because these things, you've got gas under high pressure, and if they explode, it's not pretty. But you know what's interesting too, Jay, is that technology has changed a lot, and now what they have is they, they used to always have and still do have the big land-based $2 billion pieces of equipment that do this LNG, but now there are ships that do this, floating LNG, and they sit just off the horizon, and they, so the LNG tanker comes up to this ship that's just over the horizon, about 11 miles offshore. This ship only costs $350 million, like 80% less than a big land-based LNG terminal, and they put the, the LNG back into the regular gas and just pipe it into the coast. And so it's, it's much more environmentally benign. These ships, obviously, they can be moved around can, for mark, wherever market demand is. And you're really starting to see that pick up around the world. South America's got two or three. Asia's got two or three. And these things, that's going to be a big growth industry. They're lower capex. They're safer. They're out of sight. Uh, I, I just think it's the wave of the future, and it's already here. And uh, off, so these, are, these are actually ships offshore that, that process this. That's right, and we put them just far enough offshore, Jay, so that we couldn't see them. $350 million or so capital cost on those? Yes. So we're talking, though, really we're talking about probably the large household name uh, oil and gas companies that are involved in, in this LNG process. All the majors, that's right, the, the big, big, big boys. The uh, ExxonMobil's and those guys? Yes, and, and they've all made big gas purchases now, like BP bought PetroHawk, uh, Exxon bought XTO a few years ago, so they now have, these big oil companies now have very large gas things as well. Shell's another perfect example where they've bought a lot of gas companies in the last few years. So they have the money to develop this infrastructure, and they they see it as the future. Keith, we we had earlier on today's show uh, Gordon Chang, who is very bearish on China, um, and I'm not sure that Gordon is bearish on China forever. I just I think he he believes that there are a lot of problems uh, with the form of government they have still, and so on and so forth. And but um, what what is your take? Where is the export demand going to come from? Well, if it's LNG, it can be shipped virtually anywhere in the world. Do you think it's going to come from China? Yes, it's going to come from 
India, China, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. Right now, that's where the big, the, the big demand is from. And basically, it, because you have such lower capex than nuclear, uh, and, and it's, it's a much cleaner fuel, there's no waste disposal problems like you have with nuclear, so the industry is moving that way, and Japan made a very pronounced announcement after the earthquake in January 2011 that they were going to be reducing nuclear dramatically and increasing gas. So you, you've seen the LNG market around the world pick up quite a bit to the point where now, Jay, there's about just under 400 LNG ships in the world. Every single one is busy. There is not a single ship idle in the entire global fleet. You know, the shipping industry had, and other areas of the shipping industry had been a bit weak here with the weaker economy. Very weak. The LNG ships are, are full blast. What, um, all right, so, and I noticed uh, in the papers that there's a growing discontent in China also about the use of nuclear. So do you, do you cover nuclear at all in your newsletter, or do you just basically stay with the uh, hydrocarbons? Jay, I am very, very focused. Only oil and gas. No nuclear, no coal no uranium, no alternative energy. I stick to my knitting. And that's Oil and gas and not even coal. Not even coal. And coal, of course, has its own environmental concerns. One of the advantages, clearly, of natural gas is that it is perhaps the cleanest burning fuel we, we have, uh, certainly the cleanest burning hydrocarbon, right? Yes. I, I do keep my eye on the coal market because it, it, it's so important to natural gas in the United States mm -hmm. because that's the main competitor for natural gas. So as, mm -hmm. as the two pricings get close on a BTU basis, I, I kind of monitor that, but I don't really follow the coal market. There was some uh, technologies even back to World War II. I think the Germans had um, the to turn coal into liquid gas. Is that is anything happening there on that front as far as you know? A, a, a little bit, yes. What, what, what's happening there is, is really better spoken to by a, a man like Tom Drelay as opposed to me, but you are seeing a lot of gas to liquids now. Uh, that technology being improved upon steadily. Shell has made a huge commitment to it, and Canada and Canada has made a big commitment to it. So you're starting to, to see that get a little more mainstream. Of course, I would guess if uh, natural gas is so cheap, at least for now, that probably puts a damper on some of those other alternatives. There, there really is no need for it in, in the immediate term when you have something this plentiful, this cheap. So it is very cheap now, uh, but there are ways to make money. Uh, certainly, what about pipelines? Uh, do you do you? I guess you probably don't follow pipelines, but pipelines would be one one way. I would think investors might profit, especially let's say retirees who are looking for something other than the than the highway robbery rates that are being paid on on deposits and banks and so forth these days. I mean, there are pipelines that pay pretty good yields, I believe, right? There are, and, and, and I would suggest that investors should probably stick with the oil pipelines. But what I see happening, all the gas pipelines that have been built in the last three or four years, and there have been several of them, all in the billions of dollars, uh, they have long-term contracts with their customers. They have to get that before they start to build it to guarantee their rate of return for their investors. But what, what has happened, Jay, is because there has been so much shale gas discovered, is that these pipelines really aren't needed as much as they used to be because local gas can serve local markets now. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you, we, you just look at the Rex pipeline that was built by Kinder Morgan from Wyoming to Ohio that's meant to supply Rockies gas to the U.S. Northeast, which is the big market. That's, that's you know New York, Boston, the East Coast, all the people who live there, that's the big natural gas market. 
Sure. Well, that was a $4.5 billion pipeline. And it now really is almost irrelevant because of this new Marcellus shale that has been discovered right in New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Wow. And, and that happened in, in like two years. So it, mm. it, it's, this whole industry now is just really in flux. And like I said, these companies have got long-term contracts with their customers, so, so their payouts and their dividends are, are all but guaranteed. But it's just interesting to see how quickly all this new shale gas that has been discovered is really turning the industry topsy-turvy. So even on your pipelines, which used to be no-brainer investments, I think investors need to do just a little bit of due diligence to make sure that that pipeline really does have all the commitments they need to keep paying out their dividends because the reality of the market is now they're just not as essential as they used to be. Do you see, uh, so so there's this pipeline from Wyoming uh, into the Northeast. Um, I mean, I guess people, if they're under long-term contracts, they're still obliged to, to get their gas from, yeah. from that pipeline. But that means that the local people are going to pay more, perhaps, huh? Probably. Um, well, let, let's see, uh, while we're on the topic of pipelines, uh, the Keystone Pipeline, of course, which has had so much publicity with Mr. Obama saying no to it, uh, how significant do you think that um, could be um, and, and would be if it were built? And do you think it will be built, or do you think that uh, Canada will sell its uh, products to China, perhaps, instead? No, I, I think it's going to get built. I, I think this, this last iteration has been a genius move where they said, we're going to just build the southern leg. And so that just goes from the Cushing, Oklahoma, where the, which is where the big bottleneck for U.S. oil prices are. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's where every spring now, because of all the huge new supply out of North Dakota, all the new shale oil, it, it, it's all being bottlenecked at the main hub, which for some strange reason in the United States is in the middle of the country and not on the coast. So at Cushing, Oklahoma, where the WTI price is set, they have a glut of supply. So now with this new southern leg of the pipeline, that will draw away about 800,000 barrels a day of supply out to the coast. So that will really help, I think, the U.S. Uh, oil producers that are north of Cushing and west of Cushing. What, what happens is that most, a lot of the U.S., particularly on the east coast and the south coast, Jay, it's pretty close to world prices mm -hmm. because they, they compete with, with Brent. But for the north and the west of the United States, and certainly for all of Canada, it's very dependent on WTI pricing. So I think you'll see a lot of jobs get created there. You'll see a lot of uh, new pipeline flows out of Cushing down to the coast. In fact, you're already seeing several pipeline companies saying that they're going to reverse the flow of oil that had been going to Cushing before back down to the coast. Hmm. So you're going to see probably about a million, million three, million three hundred thousand barrels of oil more leave Cushing every day by the middle of next year than what you have today. So that, that, that'll reduce the bottleneck, and, and it'll put the issue past the presidential election, which is what the Democrats want. Well, for Obama, I thought it was a genius move to get this southern leg done because he gets to tell the Greenies that, look, we are environmentally friendly and we're not allowing any more oil sands production with this particular pipeline. And he gets to say to the industry, look, we're working together and we're getting this done. It's happening. So he mm. got to avoid the most contentious issue around the oil sands production because it, without that northern leg, you really can't do that. But, Jay, I do believe that will get done. I just think it will get done after the U.S. election. 
Yeah. Well, the Republicans are certainly trying to make a big deal out of it, and what you're saying is it's it's not a big deal, really. It's uh, it's politics, perhaps, but a little more than that. Um, okay, do you think there's a chance uh, with natural gas so cheap? I mean, could we could we start uh, fueling our automobiles on natural gas? I mean, we're doing it with buses in the city here in New York. Yep, you're starting to see it. The fleets, the commercial fleets are starting to do it. Um, I just noticed that uh, in Canada a big gas producer in North America, based out of Calgary, but quite active in the States, they have opened their first liquid natural gas gas station in Louisiana just about a week or two weeks ago. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so you're starting to see this happen now where, as, as an example, uh, a lot of the fleets in the energy patch are converting to LNG, and both now in the Northeast, in the Marcellus Shale, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, you're starting to see a series of gas stations being planned where all the industry people who serve the development of the shale plays are going to be on LNG. Hmm. There's going to be real retail commercial gas stations that anybody who's got it can, can go in. So I think you're starting to, that's the thin edge of the wedge, and I hmm. think that's going to keep growing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, I guess the economics will drive it, but of course the car, the automobile industry needs to um, to make the um, the adjustment as well, right? Yes, and conversion kits right now are quite readily available. It is an aftermarket product; it's not something that they're building at the factory yet, but it's actually not expensive or onerous to do. So I, I think it really does have the potential to catch on. I mean, if I'm driving uh, any distance away from my home, though, I need to know that I can refuel along the way. Um, Absolutely. I frequently drive from New York to Ohio, where my family uh, lives, and, you know, I have to fuel up usually once along the way or uh, before I come back. So I guess that's the issue. It's just a matter of time, and economics will drive it, I suppose. Uh, Keith, we only have about oh, a few more minutes left here. Uh, would like to get some idea of what some of your what your focus is on more on your newsletter what kind of companies do you look at where do you think the most money can be made uh in this in this uh evolving industry right now is it in the is it in the exploration side uh the oil and gas exploration not gas so much but exploration or where where can we make money in this sector and do you have some favorites that you might want to point out sure i've got a couple ideas for people to go check out uh, you know last year was a horrible year in all the natural resources because yep. The debt drama in Europe, valuations on the juniors got sold way down. But the fundamentals still stayed great. The oil price didn't go down last year, Jay. It was just the oil stocks. Mm. So now what you're seeing is if you can find a fast-growing producer that has a cheap valuation, that, and, there, and there's several of those out there, that that's the place to be. I, I see the intermediates and some of the high-growth juniors as the best place to make money right now. And one of my favorites is a company called D3, symbols DTX. GTX? DTX on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. And, and the name, of the, com- the name D- of the company again, Keith, is what? D3. D-E-E-T-H-R-E-E. Okay. Uh-huh. And they have two big plays right now. They've got a great oil discovery up in central west Alberta, right up against the foothills, called the Belly River Play. And they've just figured out how to probably triple production out of their wells. So that's been a, a, a really good piece of news for the stock. And they also have a very large land position in another play called the Alberta Bakken. Mm-hmm. And that particular play did not have great results last year. So the stock got sold down pretty hard. 
But then, only about two weeks ago, they came out with the best results ever. It was about 550 barrels a day for a, a well there, which was just, it was pretty well double mm-hmm. the best well that they had ever had before. And then I see that another company in that play also had some um, success there. So all of a sudden, this play is coming back to life, and people are realizing it's not dead. It actually has a lot of potential still. Mm-hmm. So D3 now has those two plays, and the stock is trading around $4, just under $4. And I think if they can develop if they can show the market in the next couple of months with the next few drill holes that they really can replicate these fantastic new well results that they've had, the, the, the stock has a great chance at being a big winner this year. Mm. Uh, what, how many shares outstanding there, Keith? About $63 million. How many? Just, just over 60, 65 million. Okay, all right. So and that's uh, my sweet spot, Jay. I try and find stocks that have one to 3,000 barrels of production, about mm-hmm. 60 to 80 million shares out, net cash or very small debt, and a big play, a big play with lots of running room mm-hmm. where you know it's a good low-risk, long-term play that the market hasn't uh, priced that in yet. Well, that sounds like a winning formula to me, Keith. Again, tell our listeners where they can avail themselves to your service. And uh, what, what is your charge for a, a newsletter for your subscriptions? Well, they, 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 I write quite a few stories about the industry for free, and I just post them on my website. So they can okay. go read they can educate themselves all about the industry at www.oilandgas-investments.com. And then on the paid service that I charge, it's $500 a year or $50 a month. Mm-hmm. And we like to think that investors would get that back on the first trade. doesn't always happen, but uh, we work really hard to make sure we do our research on these companies. And the other thing I'd say is much like Chen, uh, I, I put my own money on the line on every trade. I, I never tell my subscribers to look at a stock without me having, putting my own money on the line to make sure that they know that I've done my own due diligence because I put a lot of my own money in. Mm-hmm. Skin in the game. Absolutely. Good idea at uh, putting your money where your mouth is, to use another uh, another worn out uh, uh, phrase, I suppose. Well, anyway, Keith, we are out of time. It's been delightful. Thank you very much for uh, helping to educate our listeners about this uh, emerging Uh, really growth industry now, oil and gas in the United States. It really is an exciting story, and we hope to have you on from time to time to talk about other ideas that you have and and, uh, let people know uh, that you're around and what you're doing and how they can also participate in what looks like a very exciting turn of events for the United States. Thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity 
American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at www www.rypatchgold.com Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. My discussion with all three guests today were fascinating. At least I found uh, the discussion to be very, very interesting. I hope that you feel the same way. Well, whether you do or not, we'd like to hear from you from time to time. I'd like to know what you're thinking, either pro or con, with respect to the views of our guest and with respect to my views, too, because, as you can tell, I am also quite opinionated about a number of topics. I do read all of the comments that you send my way, so please feel free uh, to to let me know what you're thinking, and once in a while I do manage to work them into next week's radio show. Well, the discussion with Keith Schaefer today was pre-recorded, and I did not have enough time to air all of our talk here at the end of the show. There were some very interesting points that I had to skip over, but I will replay this discussion in its entirety next week. Also joining me will be James Otto. James is an attorney who will talk to us about the loss of manufacturing jobs in America something that Dr. Coleman predicted a long time ago would happen as a result of the Committee of 300. Well, uh, James Otto will also tell us what he thinks needs to be done to fix this problem, and he'll also talk about the enormous cost that has been exacted by exporting jobs to other countries. James is not necessarily a free market proponent, so there may be some points of disagreement between himself and myself, but that's what makes life interesting, isn't it? We like to have some different points of view uh, well, I know very much what I believe, but we want to keep 
also, we also want to uh, try to remain objective and examine the views that we have from time to time. I expect we may also have another surprise guest or two next week. I hope that you will join me once again. Well, in closing, I want to thank, as always, my uh, the staff at Voice America for making this show logistically possible. I certainly want to thank my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump and Justin Jackman, uh, my Cracker Jack engineer for making this show possible, again, from a logistics point of view. And thanks to each of you for listening, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.